This is an ABC podcast. What's your relationship with the grid? Are you locked in or living off-grid? How much is it costing you? As energy prices skyrocket, many Australians are changing the way they get their electricity. This is Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay, coming to you from Nam, Melbourne. If you've just received a gas or electricity bill and compared it to your last, you're probably thinking, when will these price rises end? The war in Ukraine is part of the answer to that question, but the transition from fossil fuels to renewables is also coming at a cost. So what can you do to keep a lid on the cost of household energy? This discussion comes from the University of Queensland. The speakers are Chris Winter, Executive Director of Red Earth Energy Storage, Professor Neil Horrocks, Director of the UQ Centre for Energy Data Innovation, and Aisha Razak, the Executive General Manager Retail of Energy Queensland. Host Tegan Taylor from ABC Science asks Aisha why households are paying so much more for energy. We are going through a bit of an energy crisis. And in terms of power prices and why they are skyrocketing, it's probably down to three things, if I sort of just put it really simply. The first one is weather patterns. Um, We're sort of seeing enormous changes in, in weather. And if you recall earlier in July, Queensland recorded its winter peak demand in history. And so, you know, I've got staff and customers in Cairns and Townsville, and they were turning their reverse cycle air conditioning thermostats to the hot setting, which is, you know, they've never had to do before. (laughs) It's very unusual. So, you know, customer behaviour really influences the way energy is consumed and how retailers and energy providers purchase their energy. The second one is the war in Ukraine. That has really impacted the cost of our fuel. So if we have a look at Gas prices, for example, which I used to run my gas-fired peakers to meet peak demand, gas prices were at $10 a gigajoule. Now they're around $40 to $50 a gigajoule. And same with coal, it was around $100 per tonne. Now that's $400 per tonne. So when the input prices go up, the retail prices go up, the wholesale prices go up as well. And then the third part is just this transition we're seeing to renewables. As more and more announcements are coming out about thermal plants being retired, and you know, new renewables coming in, there's going to be this really awkward transition for a while. We're sort of seeing a lot of unplanned scheduled maintenance by some of our larger power generators. And so the market works on a supply and demand mechanism. So you know, if there's not enough supply and more demand, that's another reason for prices going up. The grid that we have today was really developed for a very different lifestyle, a very different interaction with electricity. Yes. When we first put the grid in, it was, a, you know, I think it expanded in the 60s or something like that into central Queensland and that sort of thing. And everyone wanted a bit of electricity because they'd be running light bulbs and maybe a refrigerator or something like that, which was fantastic. You know, you suddenly have some sort of power. But of course, as time went on and new um, products and that were developed that used electricity and everything that you make now, really, if it doesn't use electricity, you're not going to be able to sell it. The only thing is like a wood-fired stove. <laughs> People still want to put the wood in, but now you actually don't even do that. Now you have the light and everything behind it. So effectively, everything's, you know, more and more things have become used by us, you know, that that people want to use. And so if you think about it, one of the big changes there was when air conditioning started to come in. So of course, air conditioning is the type of thing where we all sort of turn it on at the same time. And the issue you have with that, of course, is that a grid, which is designed to provide, I mean, ideally a fixed load, because you have the, especially in Australia, you have the power station a long way away and you have a lot of wire. And the wires have to be fat enough to get the power to you. It's very much like a water network. And if everyone needs a lot of electricity or water at the same time, you need a fat pipe for that short period of time. You've got to pay for that fat pipe. And so it's just that sort of situation is getting magnified more and more now. And of course, with electric vehicles now, um, you're going to see that even you know, more of an issue for a traditional grid to supply. And so if you can make power and uh, store power at the point where you actually use it, you can actually take the pressure off the grid. I feel like the grid might in the future be more of a trickle charger for normal households. I mean, that's different for, you know, like an aluminium smelter or something like that. Okay, they're going to be a different thing. But today we're talking about households here. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the one way I like to explain it is, you know, you used to have a one-way road, a one-way street. Cars used to go in one direction. And so electrons used to flow from the generation to the customer's home one way. Now with um, our customers having behind the meter technology like solar and batteries, it's become a two-way street. And so the wires that are running need to count for energy flowing to the house and then coming from the house back into the grid as well. And as part of the Queensland Energy Jobs Plan that was recently announced by the Premier, you know, they're talking now about building this super grid in Queensland and making this huge investment because the grid has to now again change to take into account the number of new renewables um, that are going to come online in Queensland, which is an absolutely exciting future. So we need new lines or a new backbone in Queensland that will transport energy from the renewable generators rather than the coal generators into the customer homes. And I think one of the other real challenges for us is because a lot of those two-way flows are happening in our neighbourhoods, we really need to understand almost in real time sometimes which way the energy is flowing, where the demand is, where the generation is. And we don't have a lot of places or nodes on the network where we can collect that data and then aggregate it so that we can make decisions in real time to try and balance demand and supply. And I think obviously things like smart meters, and we might talk about them a little bit more as we move on, but things like smart meters might help but we, we don't have a lot of smart meters in New South Wales and in Queensland. Victoria's um, smart meter rich. So they have a lot of smart meters down there, which makes it much easier for them to control those sorts of challenges. Well, we're going to talk a lot about renewables tonight, but the majority of the grid is still reliant on fossil fuel power, Aisha. That's right. I mean, while Queensland's got the highest penetration of renewables and the biggest uptake of solar, 75% of energy is still supplied from fossil fuels. So, you know, what we really need to ensure is that any transition that we have is done in an orderly manner. Again, the Queensland government's got some really bold ambitions they always have, and they've said, we want to get to net zero by 2050. But as part of this recent announcement, they've actually, you know, accelerated that and they said that we're going to spend, you know, $4 billion into this plan and also accelerate the two targets. So we get to 70% by 2032 and 80% by 2035. So trying to put a climate positive Olympics on as well. I think it's going to be a really good time to be in, be a Queenslander. But you can't just put a switch and go, oh, we're renewable now. No, that, well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the transition is going to be a long transition. And it's probably not going to be a linear one. We look at what's happening in rooftop solar, and that's really interesting in Queensland, as you said. Mm. You know, we have kicked some really big goals. In fact, we're leading the world along with South Australia in our uptake of rooftop solar. And I'm sure with the way that we've adopted solar, it's been really quite a good journey for households. A lot of that solar has done exactly what it promised to do. It went onto our roof, it generated energy, it didn't give us any problems at all, and our bills went down and all of that anxiety disappeared. So there's a high level of trust in the technology, and maybe that'll embolden people to move now to the next generation, which is batteries, maybe EVs. And if they have a good experience, you know, I think we'll see this real democratisation of our energy industry with households taking a much bigger stance. It is a daunting proposition though, isn't it, Chris? Or do you feel like I see it completely differently. I see it very exciting. It's a very exciting opportunity, obviously with an engineering background on that. I just love it the way basically we're just changing the electricity grid. You know, before it's just a remote um, power stations and wires and now, you know, technology is driving the um this change in the grid and the grid we're going to have in 10 or 20 years time is going to be quite different to what we have right now especially if you're looking at it from a householder perspective because you know from our side our perspective there's a lot of opportunities that are going to open up for well uh, mainly for our customers but also for householders in general and i feel like really that there's that real change happening right now it's never going to be a very smooth change everyone's a gentle change but it's, it's not going to be like that it's going to be a bit of argy-bargy going on, but I feel like at the end of it, definitely is an opportunity that Australia has right now to demonstrate how you do that sort of thing, you know, to other parts of the world. I mean, we have a real head start in a way because we already have so much solar available right now. Now we're adding other technologies. It's not just about adding a battery and storing a little bit into in the thing and using it at night, you know, or when the grid goes out to keep your roller door going up and down. There's many more things that you can do with that now. You know, and EVs is also going to be something interesting, which you might say something about later. What solar and batteries will do to the grid is what mobile phones do to landlines. And we've got this future where we can really rewrite the rules of what's possible. It's a clean slate. But one of the things that I'm sort of 
incredibly passionate about is just taking some of our more vulnerable customers along this journey. And it's great to have all the technology, but we really need to support it with the right education piece and the right platforms. And then the third bit is just getting that customer trust. You know, 20 years ago, who thought that we would let Fitbit track our sleep or, you know, have apps follow our kids to school. And likewise, once we have this new technologies and we want to use the data and control it, one of the things that's really important is to build that trust. So you're talking about trust and education there, but when you said vulnerable populations, it reminded me of this question that Brad sent in. And Brad said, state housing is rented by people generally on lower incomes. Rather than giving one-off payments to pensioners, what if we put it towards, or in the hope that it's put towards power bills, what if we installed solar on state housing? Is that a sustainable solution? Is it part of a sustainable solution? To me, it feels like a sustainable solution. You know, the cost of solar is now quite reasonable and depending on the size of those rebates, payback commercially for that sort of investment by the government over 15 or 20 years, depending on the quality of the equipment you put in, should be easily attainable. And there's a lot of benefits for the for the inhabitants of those um, of that social housing, not just the fact that they'll get cheaper daytime, but it just takes a lot of the anxiety out of the whole bill challenge that they face as vulnerable customers. So it looks like a, a realistic opportunity. The challenge, of course, is the high capital cost en masse and finding ways to to fund and recover that over time. Is just putting solar panels on the roof the whole solution, Chris? Well, if if you don't want to invest in battery system and everything like that, if you were have, you know, like housing, lots of government housing, if you did put solar on the roof, you could imagine, okay, I'm going to take off one third of the electricity consumption. I'm going to just use it myself. All I've got is solar. But if you're talking about a 50% increase in solar price, I mean, you do counter that quite a lot just by having solar on its own. Because you have the reality is if you want to actually put more technology in, it simply costs more. It has to sort of be justified. So from our perspective, battery systems are really uh, worthwhile. But really, if uh, you have to have enough battery. If you have a very small battery, and a lot of people putting in quite small batteries, they don't really do very much. They might magnify the effect of the solar a little bit, but they don't really do that much. You sort of have to have a minimum size. And then you can take advantage of, of other opportunities that are in the market and are developing right now. What do you think the right size is right now for batteries? Well, okay, a lot of people we uh, work with, they like to go through the night. Like often we say, look, if you have enough battery, and so you might be doing like, I mean, a lot of our customers are looking at 12 kilowatt hours and that sort of thing, so they can get through the night. If they want to trade and some of them want to trade on the grid, so they want to have a bit more electricity so they can actually go through the peak in the evening, but they can also, when the price is high, they also have electricity to feed into the grid as well. And so... I mean, the biggest systems that we normally sell for average customers is 30 kilowatt hours. The smallest is really, I mean, some people, yeah, they do six or something, but it's its not really going to get you through the night. And a lot of people, when we're talking to them, they like the idea. They've got, usually got quite a bit of solar on the roof and they generate quite a lit and they export into the grid, but but usually they don't get very much for that now and they prefer to just save it up. And, and the, people seem to like the idea of just being able to use their own electricity until the sun comes up in the morning. The last six hours from midnight, you know, to the morning isn't really very much electricity. And and so a lot of systems are developed so that you can just add a little bit of extra battery if you want just to uh, tide them over. So on the grid, Scott's asking, why is electricity becoming so expensive when we do have so many people feeding into the grid? So I guess that goes back to the earlier point I made is that what we have a, a situation at the moment is we've got lots of solar and rooftop solar in the house. So we have plenty of energy in the middle of the day, but when the sun goes down and the coal plants and the gas fire plants need to ramp up, we still have this massive peak that we've got to deal with. So what we need to do is as we transition to renewables, we need to put in more fast responsive technology that can handle that transition. And really, and you know, batteries will be one solution to that. So what we can do is, you know, we, we have the energy, and when we have the energy to move it to when we need the energy. So really it's that shift between we've got plenty of energy in the middle of the day, but we don't have enough during the night time. So the wholesale energy spot price fluctuates between minus $1,000 to $15,000 per megawatt hour every five minutes. And so today, beautiful Queensland day, all during the day we had negative prices and tonight you know, we're hitting the maximum peak prices. So that variability and that volatility is causing those high power, power prices. 
And I think there's three other things that contribute to it. I think you may have said this earlier, or we had a conversation earlier, that the cost of the electricity itself is only a small part of the total cost that you pay. So that's the first thing to remember. So the, the power that's being fed in is only a small part of the total cost of your price. The second thing is the people who feed that into the grid are getting paid. So, you know, there's a cost attached to that. It's not free solar into the grid. And the third thing is the price you pay for electricity is an averaged price, averaged as you're referring to across the whole day. So solar is only there during the day. It's only a part of what's generated during the day because obviously industry needs much more power than that. And so averaged across everything, it, it just doesn't have the biggest impact that you might think it does. The pressure on the price also is, is us as we buy more and more appliances and start to, to EVs as I was driving in today. They were talking about you know, the availability of EVs and how they're coming, they're coming, you know, it's taking longer. And that's just going to put more pressure. So we actually make it more difficult to provide a, a lower price ourselves just because of that peak demand. And we were talking about household power. Previously, a car just wasn't part of that equation, but increasingly it will be. Oh, definitely. I think people who've driven electric vehicles, they always realise that they're actually very good to drive. They're much easier to drive. They they just are a much nicer way from an engineering perspective. The drivetrain and everything is just much better and they're faster. Admittedly, in the outback, when you're going to go a long way, it's not so easy. But I mean, the bulk of the people are in here. We're not trying to convert. Not everyone's going to convert in one go anyway. But definitely, there's it's, it's just a, a thing. And then the, the next thing, of course, is people talk about vehicle to grid. I don't know if someone's mentioned vehicle to grid there. And so obviously, you have a lot of batteries around. You like to use them a little bit. So the technology is going to gradually develop to do that as well. I mean, it's not here really at all right now, especially because there's not that many electric vehicles in the first place right now. Can you now, just unpack that a little bit? So you've got your car yeah. plugged in. Yeah. And if, if it's got a full battery, maybe it's actually feeding power back out again. Well, that's that's what you could do later on. I mean, at the moment, like electric vehicles, now they often have vehicles to load. So they might have a, a power point on the side of the car. You just plug your hairdryer in. So you could be at the camping site and say, <laughs> I could just gonna blow dry my hair while the other person's next to you running the metho stove, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so theoretically, like, Right now, well, we can do it obviously right now. We just plug in a charger into that PowerPoint and just charge up through our systems and you can go vehicle to grid straight away. Just it depends on what technology you have on site. In the future, you're going to be wanting to do more of that. But of course, the car moves around a little bit. I think you're going to end up with a car with its own NMI in it, its own electricity meter in it, because it is a big user. I mean, it's half your electricity. Once you use it for transportation, like what you use in your house and what you use in your cars is is about the same amount, right? So this thing will probably end up with an NMI because things we can do in the future is when you generate electricity, you can power share, you know, so you can actually share your power because your car isn't at home, power share it to your car wherever it happens to be, right? So I, I, I find it very exciting about all the opportunities that are, are going to come to us, you know, sort of like, I feel like what we're sort of putting in place is what when the internet was sort of first put in place and all the young ones come along, and they have all these ideas because they just go up and there's the internet. And I say, I might make Facebook because this, this is my world now, right? And so we're making the world, I could do this and I could do that. On the EV story, you know, we, we've all spoken about it's not going to be a straight line transition for energy. And one of the provocations that we're playing around with at the moment, which is really interesting, is that, you know, there's a drive in this country to move us to EVs, to move the whole fleet eventually to EVs. And that drive is occurring in every country in Australia. So we've got a big, you know, enormous demand. That demand's alive in Europe, which is closest to a lot of the factories that are making it. If we look in Australia where our vehicle fleet is 15 million cars and we look at how many imports we bring in and all our EVs will be imports at the moment, our PB, our personal best of imports, happened in 2019. We bought 800,000 cars in passenger vehicles. So if tomorrow we stopped importing anything but electric vehicles, it would take us 10 years to replace half of our fleet. So we're now probably the middle of 2032. Now, we all, all know that international supply chain's got a bit of a problem. So we're not going to stop importing petrol vehicles and we're going to have a lot of trouble getting petrol vehicles. So now we move to 2035, 2037, which is when you hit a really, really interesting dynamic. And again, this is a provocation. This is designed to make you think, well, what would happen then? So by 2035, 2037, autonomous vehicles are starting to really come into their own. And autonomous vehicles are much cheaper to drive per kilometre travelled. They're much faster to destination during peak periods. And they are zero uh, concern. You don't change batteries, you don't fuel them, you don't clean, you don't do any of that. 
and in 2035, 2037, and I don't want to, um, I'm, I don't want to speak ill of some of our audience tonight, but probably two thirds of our driving population will be millennials who we know are predisposed to sharing economy. So do we then start before we even get our fleet to a to a point where we can convert a large amount of it? Do we start to see cars disappear from homes because people prefer to go to autonomous vehicles and we built this big infrastructure for EVs? And we see it slip away from us. It's so interesting because as you're talking, I'm going, oh, we're really kind of getting away from this sense of household power, but we're not because this, this, these projections are what informs what we need for households. And we either have an individual electric vehicle in a household taking the same amount of power again, or we don't have a vehicle at all. And that's the point. You know, the trip is not going to be a straight line. Where it ends up, who knows? I like your future because I think it's so exciting. At the other end, we've spent all this money building infrastructure and it's not being used. So some big decisions are going to be made. Someone's got to fund it though. Someone's got to put in, there's got to be big picture plans. Like what goes into making those big state level, national level plans? No one knows what the future holds, but I do agree with Chris. There's this real opportunity to take this to the next level. But I think one of the things that I do know from some of the research that we've done is things like customers wanting to go off grid, you know, Five years ago, not many people were interested. And in our recent survey, five to 10% of our customers were like, we want to go off grid. But on the, on the other hand, you've got to think about the ramifications of that. For example, you know, when we had the Queensland floods and we had 100,000 households off power, we had our field crews out there and we restored power for most houses within three days. Now, if you're, you're off the grid, who comes and services and maintains and replaces your solar if it's got hail damage or batteries? Is there a service level for you know three hours? So I think there's all these different operating models and business models, and I don't think there's sort of a clear direction. I'm not. I'm probably not answering your question, but I'm just saying there. It's it's just. Uh, but but there will be new economies because this is how you know how Uber started and how yeah. Airtasker started and how all these new businesses started. So that thing about young entrepreneurs coming in to see an opportunity, um, I think there'll be that's exactly what's going to happen, but we none of us are seeing it. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I looked at this issue at my own solar system and based on weather, based on th- periods of three or more days where I didn't generate enough for what I needed in the house, it was three events this year that I would have, if I had a 20 kilowatt hour battery, I probably would have had at least a day without power if I didn't have a connection to the grid. Yeah. Aisha, when you did that research, do you get a sense of, what's driving people's move away from the grid and wanting to be off grid? Is it a kind of like frontiersy mentality or is it just a distrust in being utilities and systems? I think um, uh, post-COVID, one of the things that we've sort of seen in our research is this new um, segment called this work from home segment. A lot of people are running their homes as businesses, um, as schools, whatever, right? So you know, reliability is becoming much more of an importance factor. And so, you know, a lot of our customers are saying that we're actually willing to pay more for reliability. They're not necessarily saying they want to go off grid, but they're saying if there is a blackout or if there is a power outage, we want to have backup supply to keep keep our operations going in the house. A question from Margaret on the grid is say, would it be more efficient and effective to just discontinue the grid and have every household with its own solar power and batteries? And should our government insist that every new home built must have solar panels installed? Well, I say no. <laughs> it's not a good idea to everyone go off-grid. It's Off-grid systems are by default more expensive. I mean, that, most off-grid systems have a backup diesel generator. If you have one week of, you know, a cyclone or something like that, then, you know, you just don't make enough power. You have to have a very big system. So the economics don't make any sense there. Anyway, I feel like the more likely thing would be that the grid would the grid would become what I said before, like a trickle charge, or you might have a limited feed into the house because that way it's more economic for the grid to supply just because they're not your, your peak doesn't get so high. I think also it's really interesting if you just look at the pure numbers. So in Queensland, we've got about 2.2, dwelling, 2.2 million dwellings. About half of them have roofs, and you obviously need roofs for solar. Um, the rest are apartments or they've got roofs, but they're perhaps owned by uh, renters or their holiday homes who at the moment probably don't have the incentives or the policy settings to really en masse install solar. So half the houses uh, probably are an opportunity, but I don't think the solar generated from the roofs of those one million houses could power the other million houses 
let alone industry, which has much bigger energy needs. So I just don't think we would ever have enough capacity on roofs to actually just step away from any other form of generation. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think the um, you know the grid and the, the new technologies can complement each other. The biggest sort of opportunity um, customers have is probably looking at um, energy efficiency as well. So um, I think we're here talking a lot about EVs and batteries and solar, but I think the you know the greenest unit of energy is the one that you don't use at all. So for me, some of the discussion needs to be around it's a little bit hot or cold, put a jumper on, take a jumper off. You know, looking at insulation, looking at the fabric of the house, again, that education. We're seeing a lot of our customers have, you know, are moving towards these new technologies and they're connected like never that we've seen before and they're empowered and what they're looking for is convenience, control and flexibility. So I think there's a lot more opportunity in looking at platforms where we can create and make it invisible for our customers. So when they do come home at night time, you know, and the power prices are low, the EV charges automatically. If there's not enough power in the battery, they can get the power from the grid. So I think those trade-offs and that flexibility because one thing I do know for sure is reliability is number one and going off grid won't give you that 100% reliability. I also feel there's a, another thing. Um, a lot of the power that we use for various appliances, I feel like in all, we should be doing it all in the middle of the day. And I think if I was a, a, a appliance manufacturer right now, I'd be saying, how can I set it up so that it's very easy for people who buy my appliance to use it when it's cheapest? And, and that's going to be a little bit of a change of, oh, and I always do it like this, but people are going to change. Like sometimes I feel like these changes are generational because I'm used to doing things a certain way. And, and the younger generation, when they come in, oh, it's just different and they just get used to it, doing it like that. And so I think there's that bit of maybe, a, you know, people saying, why don't you just do it in the middle of the day? There's heaps of electricity available. Just do it then, you know, and just having to get used to that. But I also feel if that, yeah, if really those appliance manufacturers, everything just thought about a little bit. And maybe from the grid's perspective, they can send a signal out or something like that, which you can then actually action, you know, some sort of thing which is easy to use for all sorts of appliances, right? Because you don't have to run everything in the evening just because you just don't have to. So that's when I put my dishwasher on. No, I understand. Yeah, I know. You put the dishwasher on, but other people might not. Young people. Might, they might, well, they might just program it in or it just happens, oh, it just happens automatically. It starts whenever. Like if the dish is sitting there for a few more hours, what does it matter? You know, it's dirty already. We talked a lot about solar. What about other renewable energies? Where do they fit into the mix in Queensland? I mean, we often hear about, oh, people want to do wind or hydro, right? So hydro is a bit difficult because you have, you know, it's very site specific, like, and this is, we're talking about sort of residential scale systems and wind also, I mean, there's issue with wind is you can't have a whirling thing in the middle of the city and often there's not much wind in, in those places anyway. So it's not so... Some of those are not so fantastic. And the, the Queensland Energy Jobs Plan has got some really, really amazing goals that probably won't take place till the middle of the next decade, but they want to build about seven gigawatts of pumped hydro, which is essentially energy storage. You know, you use solar to pump the water up the hill during the day and at night you let it run down the hill and turn a turbine to create electricity. So that's really, really exciting. So I think hydro will play a part moving forward and so might biomass, you know, generating energy from a green waste and from our other waste. But, you know, those things are early in the piece. And then there's obviously hydrogen, and I'm probably not the one to talk about. I think with the hydro, of course, I think Tasmania is all hydro, isn't it? Yeah, and New Zealand. Mm. And I, I know from Austria, you know, there are alpine countries. So when you've got the, the, the elevation differences, everything, it's easy to do that. And people already do it. It's just more difficult when you're sort of relatively flat. So in some places you can have it, others you don't. But I don't think there's any sort of silver bullet to your answer. I, and I don't think people shouldn't be picking winners or, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. So, I mean, for me, I think there will be a mix of technologies. So there'll be, you know, behind the meter batteries for households. There'll be distribution connected batteries. There'll be batteries connected to the high voltage networks. There'll be pumped hydro. So the difference between batteries and pumped hydro is batteries currently, they've got a two hour sort of cycle. So, you know, they can give you two hours worth of power and then they go flat, whereas pumped hydro can go for a longer period. So when we talk about, um, you know, evening peaks and going for three hours between, say, five to eight or five to nine, the battery can maybe only give you two hours. So you need longer longer parts of generation as well. If I can add one final thing, I think renewables at a household level is a little bit challenging because a lot of the technology works on at scale and works when it's away from the home. 
putting a, a turbine or a propeller on your roof that might be a bit loud is probably going to be really challenging. But more than that, the, you know, for people to adopt new technologies, most of us are pretty conservative and we watch and look over the fence and make our decision based on what we've seen. And as I sort of pointed to earlier, the adoption of solar has been easy because you've watched everyone else adopt and talk about how much money they've saved and how well it's gone. You see, I looked- disagree. It hasn't been easy. It's been 15 years in the making. Like when you think about when solar first went in, and the huge subsidies they were there, and we had those large feed-in tariffs. It, it actually hasn't been. It, I don't think it's been easy. It has been a fifteen-year journey, and well, you know, one of the things I think about is the disposal of the panels as well, and what happens at the end after fifteen years. So I think the first ten years were very slow. I think yeah. the first ten years really just got us through the uh, innovators and the early. Adopters. And then the incentives came in. And once we got the movement, yeah. once we got the boulder rolling, you know, in the last twelve years, we're putting most of our solar. Yeah. And there's lots of good examples of people who haven't executed on well on showing others why it works. You know, you look at Segways, they just never really got work anywhere. Google Glasses, great ideas, but yeah. no one could look at the people using them and say, that's me, I can see myself doing that. Whereas once solar got moving, people very quickly said, I can see myself with that on my roof. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with renewables. People have got to be comfortable and have trust. We've talked about trust already today. If they can get past that initial fear, I think it can you know, adopt pretty quickly. So if we're reaching the t- the sort of slowdown point with solar, like what's the next technology that people need to be kind of jumping on straight away? When you've got just solar on the roof, obviously we're very interested in adding energy storage. So similar to battery system at the custom side of the meter. And, um, and then once you've got your battery system there and you've got your solar, you sort of, I mean, a lot of our customers are interested in actually making the economics of these sort of investments worthwhile. And so we give them the opportunity to monetize that by um, opening up the opportunity to, for example, energy trade or power share, or if, you've, if you're on a wholesale pricing, you can get paid to charge your EV in the middle of the day because your price is negative like it was today. So there's quite a few other opportunities there. And I feel like, I guess in the end, I also feel like when you add start adding all these features to a house, you're almost making um, what I call like the, the next generation of what a Queensland house is, which is where... I mean, in the past, you had a house, then you added air conditioning, and that was the stand. And I think, I feel like now there's a genuine technical change between what a house is today and what a house will be in a few years' time. And that's going to include your smart, you know, super smart EV charging, I call it, which is where you, you get paid to charge in the middle of the day. I mean, a lot of your energy storage be energy trading. There's going to be a whole lot more opportunities. Like, I, admittedly, in my house, I do a, quite a few things. I have various, uh, various things that generate a dollar a day for me. And in the end, so, of course... Um, the way I look at, the, at that opportunity is to have the, the system you're investing in your house actually as an investment rather than a, a cost. Um, so and what I mean by that is um, if you put it in, you don't have an electricity bill anymore. You've upgraded your house to what a new house might be expected to be. And that house, therefore, has more value than the neighbor's house, which doesn't have it. So that compensates already for some of the cost of putting the hardware in the first place. I just feel like we're just going to get to there. And and I really like it like because you've actually got a genuine technical change happening. It's not just like trying to sell another brand of perfume. You've actually got something different happening. And I, I just feel like, you know, like where we're going to end up is not 100% clear, but it, there's a lot of opportunities. And, of course, you know, we talk about this. I just think of it as we're changing the way the electricity grid is to a new way of being. But we've got this massive tailwind, which is climate change. So everything we're doing here is actually helping with the climate change as well. So with that sort of tailwind, you know, it really moves things along quite quickly. It's a very exciting time. I can tell all my staff, if you start in your career here, it's going to be with you your whole career. There's going to be a lot of opportunity. I think we've got to recognise as we're having this conversation is not everyone can afford these technologies. So it's fantastic. You know, yeah. you're saying go out, get an EV, get a solar, get, get, get batteries. But I think we've got to really sort of take into account there's a large segment of our population that don't understand these technologies or can't afford these technologies. And I know, Neil, you've done some really good work in your previous role around energy efficiency. So, you know, I can't bang on enough about, you know, looking at your bill, make sure you're on the right energy tariff, talk to your retailer, make sure you're getting your rebates and your subsidies. If you do have solar, make sure you're getting it serviced so it's you know, working, it's not a sudden forget. You get your car serviced every six months. When you have a solar on your roof, you've got to get that service to make sure it's, you know, working at its optimum capacity. So I don't know, Neil, if you want to yeah. sort of add I, a bit more on that space. I think the challenge for all of us, for everyone here and probably society is that we take everyone on this trip, 
and we don't have the haves and the yeah. have-nots. Yeah. You know, we talk about energy poverty, the people who are just destined to pay a lot for their energy. But there's also transport poverty coming behind. The people who've got EVs that cost nothing to run and the people driving the 20-year-old Commodores who, who are paying a lot for maintenance and, and petrol and all that sort of thing. So we've got to find ways yeah. to take people on the run. Another statement I'd, or comment I wanted to make, thought, as we build the Queensland of tomorrow, and I think that's, you know, the new, talking to enough builders and developers to know that we're starting to build those, people are going to, I think, build nests that they're going to find trouble finding a better house than that. So whereas we might have changed houses every seven years, people are now going to say, well, where am I going to move to where I can charge my EV if I've got one or where I know I'm making money because I've got batteries and I've got solar and I've got insulation and I've built a really, really a really efficient nest. And so people may end up staying in their homes longer, which again makes it hard for people who might want to aspire to move into those houses secondhand or third hand to actually get into there. So yeah, on that idea of haves and have nots, like whose responsibility is it to level that playing field? Is it just government? Does industry have a role to play? It's the have and have nots, not even just in sort of financial terms, but it's also accommodations. You know, when We've got people who feel excluded because they live in an apartment mm. or, you know, that, that, so as you say, they don't have the roof space or they're renters so they can't install because the landlord's not willing to put. So, you know, you've got the have-nots even in sort of other segments as well. Mm. And I think they're the two that sort of come to mind, renters and apartment livers. Yeah, so obviously there's always a technical something. So one of my staff members, they she rents out her house and it's, fully kitted out, right? So she, when she's rented out, I think she offered it, you know, with no electricity bill or something like that and because she passes that part of the house, right? Mm-hmm. And then with the apartments, obviously we've just heard now that all the apartments are going to have to start having EV chargers in and everyone's pulling their hair out about how they're going to get the infrastructure into it. But even if you say, oh, I can't get solar, but then obviously there's also opportunities to getting solar by having, not physically having it on the roof necessarily, but having it somewhere else. And then it's, um, you know, okay, those are my solar panels over there and I'm using them. That just becomes then a thing of how do I move the power around and what do I do? And I even think like, I've heard of it, I don't know if it's true yet, that that using the poles and wires in the middle of the day is in some cases going to be actually free just to try and encourage people to actually not just leave the electricity here, but try and move it around. And so again, that's a that helps, of course, when you're trying to power share you know, electricity you make on your roof and you can get it to your vehicle without having to pay in the middle of the day for using the network or something like that. Anyway, there's a number of different things coming up. But... Yeah, and, and that's where you've seen sort of in the UK and, and overseas community battery and community solar projects where people can buy an interest or a share in, in the program. And I think that's how, you know, we'll deal with some of these situations. Is there any pushback within the industry against this future or did people sort of see it as being inescapable at this stage? I think the only pushback I hear is people complaining about EVs and I can't drive for a thousand kilometres across the Nullarbor. Okay. I'm just but, always driving across the Nullarbor, you know? But otherwise, maybe people sort of equate that, but the, oh, it's causing everything to be more expensive. That could be one thing. But I have to admit, I, I like to be right at the front and just push and uh, and then people say, oh, oh, this is actually quite good. And then I think it'll just bring people along. I'll go back to a comment that Aisha made at the beginning about two-way flows on the network. Mm-hmm. When that first started happening, it was very much like the sky's falling in. How are we ever going to do that? And how much congestion are we going to have on the network? And where's the challenge? But in the last four years, I've just watched our networks in Australia really move up to that challenge and digitise and learn how to do things even better. And I think we're, we're probably leading the world in some of the things we're doing in this space. And I look at technologists like Red Earth and some of the products they are bringing to their customers to help them negotiate the future. And, and I don't know that anyone's saying, anyone's putting up a lot of opposition to this transition. I think they're just scared of the unknowns at the moment, but we are pretty capable of solving and working our way through those unknowns. It's, there's maybe some timing issues, but I think we're doing, we're batting well above our weight. And I'd probably add to that and say, you know, everyone understands the challenge of climate change and they understand it. But I think what they're struggling with is what's the role I can play mm. to do something about this. So I think there's, again, that that piece there about how can we make it more relevant and give actionable things for our customers, our, you know, our population to contribute to that positive future? Well, we've got a lot of individuals asking questions, so let's take some of them now. Matthias and Adam are both asking about virtual power plants and the pilot program in Victoria. 
Can you tell us more about those, what they are and how do they work? Is anyone um, here an expert on the Victorian virtual power plant? I'm not necessarily an expert on the Victorian uh, virtual power plant, but the way I see virtual power plants is a way for the utilities and the grid to try and overcome some of the issues I have with peak demand. They look out there and they see that there's a lot of battery systems. And if I pay some money to the people, I can use their battery to when the peak demand is on, right? But of course, we see that the reverse because in my mind, a virtual power plant is something that's helping the utility. And we have our private power plant, which we call it, which is um, really focused on the customer themselves. And they say, look, instead of taking $200 or whatever they give you a year, to use your battery, you could actually just use your battery, go into wholesale pricing and trade when the market's high and actually make more money. So financially, you're better off than if you went with a VPP. So I have to admit from a commercial thing, I call the VPP the evil empire and the private power plant, the private power of the Rebel Alliance. But that's just um, me. <laughs> because but, it's, I mean, genuinely, I mean, our private power plant, we really focus on our customers, on the customer side of the meter. We're talking about householders here. We're not talking about how to try and make last century's technology or support last century's technology that has to come into this century. So I guess a related question there is Simon asking why are retailers reducing the rates of the energy that we put back into the grid? So that's the rate that you're referring to, Simon, is what we call the feed-in tariff. So they're set by each retailer and um, the Queensland Competition Authority, which is a regulator, just recently put out a report and at June 2022 quarter, I think the average feed-in tariff was 5.7 cents per kilowatt hour. And I think even now I've seen some offers there where, you know, some retailers have re reduced it to zero cents or even two cents. And, you know, the theories that I think ex I expect for those tariffs to come down lower. And that's basically got to do with the fact we were talking about having too much energy in the middle of the day um, because of too much solar in the grid and the price deviating to negative $1,000 or $0. And so I guess recommendation or suggestion to that is that the feed-in tariff will go down and that's because it's reflective of what's happening in the market. When you do install solar, I would say don't oversize it. Use it so whatever you... Um, it, so install a size to make sure that whatever capacity you have, you consume. So you're not having to export any into the grid. So a lot of Consultants contractors went out when solar was booming and encouraged customers to put these massive solar systems on their roof, which is more than what they would consume on their day-to-day -day basis. And now they're not getting paid for that output. And I kind of think that what the result of that is going to be is people who haven't been getting bills with solar are now starting to get bills. And one of the side effects of that is the bill shock. You know, a big bill, three, five, seven hundred dollars turning up in the mail unexpected because most of us don't have 2020 of our usage. And that drives people to start doing a whole lot of things. And I think this could precipitate people to start looking at batteries and consider them as a you know a viable option, even if the payback's not right now, because bill shock takes us past return on investment. This one thing to Simon is um, make sure you shop around because you know there are lots of different offers out there. So some retailers are still offering up to 12 cents. So shop around and... Um, there's a website, Energy Made Easy, run by the Australian government, where you can have a look at all the different tariffs that are available. Can't really agree that the solution is to not put enough or put less solar on. I feel like we should make more renewable electricity and then find some sort of technologies, which is what we do, to actually make use of it. Because we do have that, oh, we just put a little bit on. So that's not really looking that far down the road. You know, like we want to make more, we want to make enough. Whether it's, okay, it's all in the middle of the day, well, let's move it. With the electrification of transport, no gas, more equipment in your house, you're going to need more energy, right? So sooner or later, you're going to be able to take advantage of some of that generation. I know in South Australia, they've um, it's regulated now that they put a backstop on your solar because having, as you said, we talked about this one-way grid going to two ways. There's only so much two-way flow the wires can handle. So they're actually putting these compulsory backstops on new solar installations. So network companies can restrict solar into the grid if it's going to put the network um, into strain. So, I mean, another question that maybe is part of the solution is Hamilton asking, how do we get everyone to have a smart meter so there's knowledge of power consumption? Is that part of the technology, that smart technology of sharing power? That's uh, so, yeah, so smart meters are being rolled out by retailers in southeast Queensland and regional Queensland. I think there's a, 
around a 25% to 30% penetration of digital meters, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, The Queensland Energy Job Plan recognises the importance of digital meters because that does unlock a lot of opportunities for customers in terms of, you know, getting different time of use tariffs, solar batteries trading. And I think they've committed to a 100% rollout of digital meters by 2030. So you'll see a lot more action happening there. You can request your retailer to um, install a digital meter on your house too, if that's what you want. I think we've let ourselves down with smart meters. Really? I think they're great. I think there's a lot of um, issues around, like there's a lot of perceptions in the community about the safety of smart meters. And I think we need to do more building trust because they're, they're good product. But the reason why I think we've let ourselves down is the energy industry, the electricity industry has done really well with smart meters. Those same smart meters should be dealing with gas. They should be dealing with water. They should be controlling your appliances. They should be, they're a utility-grade computer on the side of your house, so that makes them reliable and trustworthy. And we should be using them for much more than just measuring our electricity because you know they'll, they'll last quite a while and they can do a lot more than we currently do. So have got to think about what's in it for the customers. And I know some of the technology is moving there, but we're a long way from where we really need that technology to be. And coming back to the trust thing that you were talking about. Yeah. And so the digital meter, you know, it's it's like going from, I say, you know, analog scales to digital scales is not going to make it lose weight unless you have do other things in your life with it. So, you know, same with energy efficiency, you know, just because you go from an analog di- meter to a digital meter, you still need it to link into some kind of a platform that educates or turns your appliances on and off, as you say, um, and makes it work for you to just extract that maximum value of benefits for the household. Hayden's giving us a question, which is actually quite a nice one to sort of be coming towards the close. We're not finished quite yet, but Hayden's asking, in each of your opinions, what will our energy mix look like in 20 years' time? Neil, we'll start with you. I think solar will continue to play a part, not for everyone. I'd quite like what you said about people who are in apartments may share, or in body corporates may share group community solar elsewhere, and they may have a community battery underneath. So I think we'll see that in a lot of high-density living, which will cover off a lot of apartments. But I think solar will play, continue to play a part. One of the reasons to say that is because a lot of people whose solar right now is coming to end of life are going to face the opportunity to buy again, and they're going to buy cheaper, and they're going to buy bigger, which means they're going to face new, better savings. So there's going to be an encouragement for the households that have got it right now to do more. But we've got to also think about ones that can't get solar and how uh, we work then. We, we're not going to have, I don't think we'll have gas in 20 years. I think we'll have electrified a lot of things in our households. Russia? So just, I won't repeat what you said. I'll just build on. So I think in 20 years time, I would say there absolutely will be no gas. I think we've heard that debate because it'll be electrification of everything and gas is still considered a, a dirty fuel by then because there's, um, there, there is hydrogen gas being worked on, but not necessarily, um, green gas. So. Um, and then the other thing is EVs. I think EVs are going to play a big role and represent a large part of the battery storage needs for the whole market. So we can have lots of behind the meter batteries and grid scale batteries, but I think the EVs will be, you know, much more common and represent a lot of that battery capacity in the market. I really think everything will be electrified. I just think about my daughters 20 years from now. I don't know if you've heard like of the Ford Lightning. That's their fastest F-150. And it's very, very popular. And that's tradies. You get the tradies into their EVs, ripping everyone off from the lights. <laughs> and then, of course, in a, in a thing like that, you've actually got a power station inside there. You just plug your, all your tools in and you just run everything. So that's why I think it's just going to drive it. It's just too many advantages. There's lots of governments can do. There's lots of industry can do. But what are some things that everyday people can do to be on the front foot when it comes to this sort of energy revolution that we're facing? energy efficiency. You need a plan. So know what your big expensive appliances are. So it's your hot water, it's your air conditioners, it's your washing machine, your dryer, and your cooker. So think about what the alternatives are because one day they're going to break down. And if you've got a plan and you've maybe saved some money towards it, you can buy some really, like you can you can heat your hot water very cheaply with heat pumps these days. So you can make some real savings. For electricians in your house, have a think about buying some LED lights if you don't have them already from Bunnings. They're cheap now. The electrician's already in sight. Maybe they could put one or two up each time they're there. Think about temperatures in your house. So window coverings, shading, your garden that can provide uh, trees. You know, there's lots of things you can do without spending lots of money as well. Ocean? It's just being educated and informed because 
Um, I know myself, my fridge broke down on the weekend and guess what? It's easy to just go and replace it for a like for like. So if you know, and if you've done your research beforehand, if you've got a gas hot water system, um, which I do, if it, you know, breaks down, I shouldn't be replacing with a gas hot water system. I should be replacing with electric gas barbecues, you know, when my gas barbecue goes, replace it with an electric. Same with my cooktop. So I think there's things about just informing yourself so you can make the right decisions and not having to make that investment twice. I think the average punter should actually have a little bit of, uh, you know, a bit of courage and actually go out and see what is it they could actually do, like putting solar energy storage on their house, optimizing their house and that. I mean, we spend a lot of money on various things. Oh, I buy a new car. Okay, you're buying a brand new car every few years because the marketing tells you to do that. It's not really that necessary. Like, admittedly, my car's not that new. So you do actually have some choices sometimes. And if, if we get it right, you're increasing the value of your home anyway. And people really want to do that. They put a lot of stuff into their home. And, and I feel like not everyone can afford it, obviously. But, but you know, you can already start investigating, finding out, getting quotes, seeing what's happening right now. And we were just at a big show, All Energy in Melbourne. And, you know, there's a lot of activity there now, a lot of new ideas coming through. And a lot of people, um, well, not in that case, not so many people from the general public who go in, but but there was just a lot of new stuff happening. And I feel like you should open yourself up to that and see, you know, what's around. The Future of Household Energy, a UQ Frontier Forum with Chris Winter, Executive Director of Red Earth Energy Storage. Professor Neil Horrocks, Director of the UQ Centre for Energy Data Innovation, and Aisha Razak, the Executive General Manager Retail of Energy Queensland. The host was Tegan Taylor from ABC Science. Tomorrow on Big Ideas, 10 years without alcohol. Journalist Jill Stark reflects on her life since going on the wagon and writing her memoir, High Sobriety. I spoke to Jill in 2013 when her memoir was first published and caught up with her again recently to discuss that fateful decision to give up the booze and how her life has changed in the last decade. I woke up um, January 1, 2011, and I think I didn't wake up till about lunchtime. But yeah, I just thought I can't carry on like this. And uh, it was a hangover that lasted for about two days, actually, maybe three. And I just thought there has to be a line in the sand here. And that's when I decided to make a change. So it was the epiphany, really, was it? That hangover was something building before It was definitely building. I think the epiphany had been squashed to the back of my mind (laughs) for quite a while. Like I met um, Chris Rain, who is from Hello Sunday Morning. He's the founder of a fantastic online movement about that led me to to sort of give up the grog um, when I met him and did a story on him in uh, 2010 when I thought Mm. this is something I could give a go but it took another year before that hangover really was the um, Mm. yeah the the catalyst the thing is I wasn't drinking in any different way to anyone around me really to all my friends and that's Mm. that's what I think this book is about is I think my story is kind of quite universal um, and that's hopefully why it resonates is because we do inhabit this culture where, where people are writing themselves off at the weekend and, and when you look around and your friends are all doing it, it's just so easy to sort of slip seamlessly into that norm and, and not really see it as an issue. And for many people, that's fine. They, they can do that and not have any consequences. But for me, when you're having a panic attack and you have to pull the car over to the side of the road because you mm. can't breathe properly because you're so hungover, as I've documented in the first few pages of this book, that was a time to say, well, how much is drinking really worth to me if this is the consequence? Mm. Journalist Jill Stark on life without alcohol. That's tomorrow on Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for your company. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.